And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the, in, the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Now I want us to think for a moment this morning about what this text is telling us. I want us to look at two points. There's really three points, but the third point is our closing. And those points are, first of all, a biblical reminder. Second of all, a strange reminder. And third, a closing reminder. Beginning first with this idea of a biblical reminder. If, if you think about the context of the letter uh, written to the Hebrews, this is a letter reminding, it's a letter really of remembrance and reminding, a letter that tells these Jewish believers not to turn back. Don't be like those in the wilderness who wanted to turn back into Egypt. You cannot go back to lesser things. Once you've had the fulfillment, the reality, you can't turn back to shadow. And here in this great 11th chapter, we see this hall of faith it's often called, this great list of those who set an example, living by faith, standing by faith, walking by faith. How can we not recognize their example? How can we not recognize the example of so many who lived, walked, and stood by faith? And yet we come to this section we're looking at today, and it's almost as if the author of Hebrews has walked through some great examples, the patriarchs, and even through a few others. But he comes down here to this point, and he says, What more shall I say? What more can I say? The time would fail me, he says. How long a sermon are you willing to sit for? Because if I'm going to walk through all the great men and women of faith, we're going to be here a long time. So time would fail me to tell of all of these. And he goes through judges and a a great king and Samuel and then says the prophets. I mean, that's going to be a, a long sermon just walking through the prophets. And notice what he says of them. Great victorious things occurred. Through faith they subdued kingdoms. That's what we think of with victory, isn't it? Subduing kingdom. He says they did that. They worked righteousness. They obtained the promises that had been made and given. You can imagine Abraham there as as a person to whom a promise had been given. A promise in one sense of land. And yet just a little while later, it hints at people like Joshua who saw the fulfillment of that promise. And so you see this. They obtained these promises. Stop the mouths of lions. We have Daniel, don't we, in the Bible. Quench the, fire, the violence of fire. Escape the edge of the sword. Again, all of these are pictures of victories, evident victories, evident victories by faith and by the power of God. 
Out of weakness they were made strong, and it was evident to all. Uh, God likes to work in ways that make it obvious that it's His power, right? He says that. He likes to show His strength through our weakness. I often think that we get it wrong when we think of Samson as some huge, uh, like Arnold Schwarzenegger looking person, right? Because it seemed like everyone questioned his strength. They were surprised at times by the strength that came upon him, but it wasn't his muscles anyway. It said the Spirit came upon him and he was mighty. So again, you see examples like this. In weakness made strong, became valiant in battle. There are examples like that just in the judges that we see. And turned to flight the armies of the aliens. And women received their dead, raised to life again. Again, all these evident signs of God working, evident signs of victory and power. All of these things that we would like to see happen around us. Enemies defeated. Great occurrences happening. Resurrections from the dead. Mouths of lions stopped. Things that we would see as evident signs of victory. But something happens halfway through verse 35, doesn't it? The list changes a little bit. Others, the author says, were tortured. Not an evident sign of victory there. Others were tortured. I told you I put my bookmark to use. You can see right here. As I was reading something this week, there was something I wanted to share with you all. Because there was something here that I thought was really fitting not only for this, obviously, but also for what we've been looking at in First and Second Thessalonians, particularly Second Thessalonians. I had mentioned in Second Thessalonians uh, that the Jews kind of saw Antiochus IV Epiphanes as kind of like a, a carbon cutout or a, a model, if you will, right, a stand-in for the Antichrist. And I want you to listen to what John Owen writes about this text today, about those that were tortured. He says this, There is no doubt, but the apostle hath respect herein under the story that is recorded in the 6th and 7th chapters of 2nd book of Maccabees. For the words are a summary of the things and sayings there ascribed unto Eleazar, who was beaten to death, when he had been persuaded and allured to accept deliverance by transgressing the law. And the like respect may be had unto the mother and the seven sons, whose story and torments are there also recorded. And this is the height of what the old murderer could rise and attain unto. He began with a sudden death by violence and blood. But when he had got advantages, he was not contented therewith. He would have the servants of the living God to die by all sorts of tortures. This was his hell, a hell of his making. But he could never put the displeasure of God into it, nor make it of any continuance, divine wrath or Uh, perpetuity under it are his own portion but that which is most marvelous herein is that he should get amongst men such as he should execute his infernal rage and malice there was never any greater instance of degeneracy of human nature under the image and likeness of the devil than this that so many having been found and that in high places of power emperors kings judges and priests were not satisfied to simply take the lives of the true worshipers of God by the sword. But by such other ways they slew the worst of malefactors, but invented all kinds of hellish tortures whereby to destroy them. For although the crafts of Satan were open and evident herein, 
who designed by these ways to get time and advantage for his temptation to draw them off from their profession of faith, by which he could not have had in speedy execution. Yet it is astonishable that the nature of man should be capable of such villainy and inhumanity. Owen writes a little differently than we do today. But what he's saying at its base is, speaking of that period under Antiochus Epiphanes, he was speaking of the tortures that, uh, that those people of God were put through, incredible tortures. And all they were asked was, recant your faith. If you will publicly recant your faith, Eleazar, I believe, is asked to eat pork, right? which the Jews saw as a violation of the law. right? So he says uh, he won't do it. It even gets to the point where Eleazar is told you can eat beef and just say it's pork. And he refuses to do it. My friends, this first of all reminds us of what we were talking about in 2 Thessalonians about uh, the evils of Antiochus Epiphanes. How many points forward, as Owen even says there, right? Almost like the, the closest and most corrupt human beings can get to Satan is when they invent ways of persecuting and bringing destruction. Not just the sword, but, but far worse methods of killing. And that's what's pictured here. That's what Owen is saying. That it's pictured here because some, he says, were tortured. And in fact, this word almost is uh, the word that would speak of drawing a skin across a drum and breaking it over the edges. And so again, the idea that Christians were put through incredible. Of course, it's pointing back even to the Old Testament where... Uh, The people of God there were put under incredible torture. And yet, notice what it says, not accepting deliverance. Again, the reason they think this is pointing to Eleazar is, again, he would not accept deliverance, even when they said, you don't have to actually violate the law. You can simply pretend to be eating pork, tell people you're eating pork, tell people that you have violated the law of God, and that will be enough. And he said, no, I won't even appear to do so. I would rather go into death in full obedience to God than to play your games. I think it's interesting the way the author of Hebrews words this. Not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Isn't that interesting wording? He's playing it off as if they had saved their own lives. It would be like a resurrection. Right? They were destined for destruction at that point. They were going to be put to death by Antiochus Epiphanes or whatever worldly power you want to think of. If they had done what was asked of them, if they had recanted their faith, they would have received back life. But they wanted a better resurrection. A better resurrection. The one that God alone can give. If you continue with this, there are things said here of how there were uh, persecutions upon the people of God. Mockings, trials of mocking. Uh, We've read about that in the Scripture. Scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. My friend, so he's talking about things that didn't just involve death. Believers were put through all kinds of persecutions. Some mocking, we have that today, certainly. But we have brothers and sisters around the world who deal with scourgings and chains and imprisonment. So it's nothing new. But it wasn't just those simple means of persecution. Look at 37. There were believers murdered. They were stoned. That's quite an amazing thing to think about. Of course, Owen has seven volumes on Hebrews, so 
he deals with it in depth and has a, a lot of thoughts I didn't find in anyone else. But one of the things I thought was interesting was he was tying this in with the idea that those who were faithful to God were given the death of those, the death that was reserved for those who were disobedient to God. Those who were heretics were to be stoned to death. And he's saying the, the verdict on these people who were faithful to God was that they were unfaithful to God. And yet they continued in their faithfulness even unto death. They were sawn in two. It reminds us of the, the horrible deaths that came to some of the people of God. And then not just death. If you continue with this, it says they were slain with the sword. By the way, I don't want to skip over that. And, uh, and again, that could picture governmental authority putting them to death. That's the power of the sword. But it could also be just people killing them with swords. Killing them with swords. The idea here again, the people of God being killed for their faith. But again, it wasn't just persecutions and murders. There was also a rejection. There was a rejection. My friends, I didn't intend for this to parallel so well Thessalonians, but it's all I could think about this week. You know, Paul's message over and over again is they're rejecting you, but that says more about them than it does about you. Or at least, if it does say a lot about you, which it does, it also says something about them. And I think that's the idea here again when you really think about it. These believers were rejected. How do you see that? Well, look at what he says in verse 37 at the uh, second half, if you will. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute. They couldn't buy or sell. They had to go into the wilderness to live. They were afflicted and tormented. Again, this is the idea of those who are kind of outcast, pushed out of society. Now, we know some chose to live that way. But the idea here is that many were forced out, if you will. They weren't accepted. They weren't welcomed in. They had to live this way if they were to be faithful. They weren't accepted uh, in Jerusalem or whatever other place we were talking about. It's interesting when you think about that because uh, they were considered outcasts, but look at what the Scriptures say. These were those of whom the world was not worthy. Those of whom the world was not worthy. Now, I thought about this because on the front of your bulletin, you'll see there's a picture of the world as the best artwork I could find. In fact, the only artwork I could really find uh, dealing with this passage. But I don't want you to get the wrong idea that the use of world there means the earth. It's meaning mankind. Mankind was not worthy of these people of God who came and lived and stood by faith and suffered and would not relent from their faith. Those who struggled and suffered in small ways and in large ways. He's speaking here of large ways that they suffered. Living, in, uh, living destitute and afflicted and tormented and being arrested and persecuted and even killed. These are those of whom the world was not worthy. Now what is all this to remind the original hearers of? You stand in a tradition of people who have stood by faith. In the Old Testament and now in the New Testament. And it's interesting that uh, right there in the list of things that are being endured is they were stoned. Right? And the first Christian martyr, Stephen, was stoned. 
So this isn't only an Old Testament story. This is a story that is moving into today. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you stand in a long line of faithful men and women of God. And there's a temptation in the moment to turn back. A temptation because it would be much easier to just simply say, let's keep the Jesus part of it quiet and we'll just go back to kind of a comfortable Judaism. It's accepted in the culture. It would be easy. And yet what we see here uh, is the call not to do that. The call to refuse to do that. And recognize that then we stand in a long line of believers who have made the same choice. Again, I think as we think about this, it's a call to live by faith. To recognize that by faith we stand. By faith they stood. They didn't didn't just receive the gospel by faith, but the message of the people of God has been passed down generation to generation by people who endured through suffering by faith. That's the key word, isn't it, for this entire chapter. Chapter 11, over and again, it says, By faith, by faith, Abel, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Sarah. On and on again, by faith, these men and women of God have stood. What are you going to do? You need to stand in the present hour by faith through these difficult times. And that brings us then to our second point this morning, a strange reminder. A strange reminder. You know, one of the interesting things over and again in the Bible is that uh, God works in paradoxical ways. We see this again in the flow of Chapter 11. Again, we just mentioned some of these names. You see patriarchs. I mean, for Jews, the patriarchs, right? These were uh, the fathers. These were the ones that they had grown up listening to the stories of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. So here they are mentioned again as a pattern, as an example for us to follow. But then there are also heroes and judges, a great king. There are prophets listed here. Not only Samuel, who is <clears throat> directly noted, but and the prophets, right? There's a whole lot of them mentioned here. And these are people that they would have recognized and would have known. And again, as I said in, in their first point, there's an obvious victory in the lives of these people. You can see it over and over. There are great events and great stories and, uh, and just great challenges that have been overcome. Again, we can see it time and again. And as I said in our first point, and I want us to think about it again, we come to verse 35. And the signs of victory seem to disappear. Where's the victory in this list? Where's the victory in being tortured? Where's the victory in enduring trials of mockings and scourgings? Where's the victory in chains and imprisonment of being sawn in half, slain with a sword? Wandering in destitution in the wilderness. Where's victory in those things? And my friends, it would be easy to look at that and say, this is seeming defeat and loss. Seeming defeat and loss. And yet again, what I think the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to look at is, some of the great victories of God came this way. Some of the great victories of God came this way. If you look in the Old Testament, 
uh, it was through persecution time and again that God refined His people. That God built His people. That God preserved His people. Over and again we see this. And we could walk through and look at the testimony that these men and women provide for future generations. Again, God moves in power in this way. And the Bible tells us that in our weakness, His strength is revealed. Paul certainly understood that. We see it many places. Paul even argues, doesn't he, that God uses the weak things of the world, right, to display His power, to put to shame the strength of the world. Again, I think that's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. God is moving in powerful ways through this. And He's also revealing something that itself is paradoxical. As the culture is pushing you out as believers, as it's differentiating between itself and you and pushing you out, it's bringing judgment on itself. This is really the exact idea Paul was getting at in Thessalonians that we were trying to get at a couple of months ago with that message on rioters and rebels where Paul was saying, be careful what part or what side of the line you fall upon because it says uh, something about where you stand in relationship to God. Here I think you see it again. You see that the culture is saying, we want nothing to do with you. You zealots, you crazy people, we want nothing to do with you. And so they're pushed out. They're jailed. They're imprisoned. You can see this in the lives of some of the great men and women of God. How about Jeremiah? They wanted nothing to do with him. They just wanted him to shut up and go away. They were willing to jail him. They were willing to do whatever. In fact, there comes that point where they're going to kill him. And they think, eh, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe, maybe we'll upset God with that one. But my friends, again, when you think for a moment, what the Scriptures are telling you is they're judging you, but in a way separating themselves unto judgment. They're making it clear where they stand in opposition to the people and working of God. How do we know that? Well, notice the, the way he words this. These are the ones who are the outcasts. Society wants nothing to do with them. The John the Baptist, the, the Jeremiah's, they're pushed out. They're the ones wandering without homes, wandering in the desert. They're the ones who are tormented, destitute, afflicted. They're the ones on the outside. And yet it's of them that he says, of whom the world was not worthy. In a way, it's an ironic way of thinking, isn't it? They're pushing them out because they don't belong. And God is saying, you're exactly right. They don't belong. They're mine. You're not worthy of these men and women. You're not worthy of them. My friends, what a testimony that is. So they're judging God's people and actually judging themselves without even realizing it. So we have this biblical reminder and a strange reminder of the suffering that the people of God go through. And I'm going to bring it to a closing reminder now as we think about this today. This is a message to the early church, but it's a, a message that reflects back to the Old Testament reality of the people of God. You may remember that, again, in Thessalonians, I mean, I hate to just keep acting like this is a complete parallel, but it is interesting to me that in Thessalonians, Paul says what? He says that you're enduring suffering at the hands of your countrymen just like the Judeans did at the hands of theirs. 
And again, we talked about that, a tying back to a heritage of suffering on behalf of the people of God at the hands of their countrymen. And he says, and by the way, that's just like it was for the faithful in the Old Testament. Paul says that. They persecuted the prophets. They persecuted everybody who was faithful to God. Jesus, by the way, says the same thing, didn't he? You persecute me just like your fathers persecuted all the prophets, all the godly men and women who came. You persecuted them. You persecute me. It's not surprising. Paul says the same thing, and now the author of Hebrews says the same thing again. There is a pattern of persecution against the people of God. And it isn't just for the early church. It's for every age of the church. I was reading last night uh, when we finish our catechism uh, that we're going through right now, Spurgeon's a Puritan catechism. I want us to go through Hercules Collins' an Orthodox catechism. That's a really interesting one. Um, it was uh, an adaptation of the Heidelberg Catechism for the English Baptists, and it's a really interesting uh, catechism, and I want us to look at that one next. But Hercules Collins, people say, how could such an uneducated man write and, 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 and preach like he did? People say, well, how could these men from that period uh, have, have written? And, and you could say the same thing, by the way, for so many of those in that first 100 years or 200 years after the, uh, the Reformation, how did they achieve so much? You know, one of the points that I'd make is John Owen right here. I mean, it's amazing to me how much more in-depth these men were thinking than anybody seems to be today. It, it makes no sense, does it? We have their writings to build upon, and yet it seems we've regressed from what those men did and accomplished. And I think the reason is because they were formed in the fires of persecution. You know, Hercules Collins was one of those men who helped do the second uh, London Baptist Confession. What we don't often think about is right before that, he spent 11 years in prison for his faith because he was nonconforming and that wasn't allowed. You had to be a member of the Church of England or you went to prison. And he did. My friends, we don't often think about the persecution that Christians have gone through, through the years, and how it shaped them and formed them. And even today, that's true. We could go through many stories we have in the past, through the years, of men and women who suffering, are suffering today for their faith, men and women all over the world who are suffering. And that's why I caution us against the kind of small suffering that uh, we might say we go through the rolled eyes, the people dismissing our faith or making a rude comment about our faith. I'd rather not deal with those things, of course. But my friends, we have brothers and sisters that are going to prison, that are being killed, that are being beaten regularly because they believe in Christ and they refuse to recant their faith. We need to remember that. We need to remember that all over the world today and every day, Christians gather in secret for prayer, for fellowship, for encouragement, and if they're caught, there are consequences, serious consequences. This is a reminder to the people to whom the author of the letter of the Hebrews wrote, to these Hebrew believers that are kind of getting shaky in their faith. He says, remember the suffering of others. It kind of helps put our own suffering in perspective. Remembering the suffering of others. And where you know those that are suffering, the image that he gives here is chain yourself to them, right? Imagine as if you're chained to them, bound to them. My friends, we need to do that too. Now, how can we do that? 
Well, an easy way is to start with that little prayer guide. That little prayer guide. The, the, the week of prayer was last week, and of course we had to kind of shift hours, but that's fine. They need prayer every week. Last week, this week, next week, and, uh, and get that prayer guide. Sign up for that. And if you're not subscribed to uh, Voice of the Martyrs, it's a good time to do so. Have that come into your house. Read about what our brothers and sisters go through because if you don't know about it, it will open your eyes. You know, one of the things that many Christians don't recognize, and I try to point this out often, is that more Christians died in the last century than the 19 previous centuries combined. We often think, well, suffering for our our faith, that's a first century thing or maybe a second century thing. My friends, we have brothers and sisters around the world, and you can just look it up. Just Google Christian suffering or Christian persecution and see the news stories that are just going to pop up page after page. They need our prayers. They need our support. We need to remember them. We need to remember them. And remember that we have what we have today because of our fathers and mothers in the faith who suffered and endured. That we might have a Bible in English that we can read that we might have all the gifts that we have. And we thank God for them, that He worked through so many faithful men and women who by faith stood and endured chains and worse, that we might have the message of the gospel brought to us. Amen.